Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. This organization, when we consider how Orthodox Jews and Judaism are seen in the world, both by insiders and outsiders, I would say some of the most impactful mitzvahs or rituals that people have strong feelings around are mitzvahs related to women. So that brings us into the prayer space, modesty, mikvah, uh, things around um, witnesses, uh, gitten and agunas. These are sort of, I would say, some of the hottest button issues. If someone were to say, where do people's issues around Orthodox Jews lie? Um, it's usually around women-centered mitzvahs. In fact, we have an entire section on jewinthecity.com related to women just because um, these mitzvahs and rituals are so heavy and sort of have, um, I would say a lot of, a lot of ways they could go wrong if they're done badly. And I would say to the positive, a lot of ways they can go right. And in my personal experience, I would say um, a better experience uh, than my life as a secular Jewish woman. Um, taking on these mitzvahs and rituals actually has improved it in numerous ways. Um, but I would say the experience of those who experience orthodoxy negatively, uh, those who grew up in sort of traumatic or abusive or dysfunctional homes will certainly experience these mitzvahs negatively. And then those stories are then amplified in the media and end up portraying the entire orthodox experience as dysfunctional, abusive, traumatic. That's kind of the, what we've discovered here at Jew in the City. The core truth is that it's happening badly to a certain segment of people, um, and not just a couple, but a sizable, a sizable enough to make a difference. And then the media amplifies those stories as if that is actual Judaism, and if that is actually how sort of Orthodox Jews are meant to behave. And so the more we can understand how to make these experiences better and positive, um, the more our work can be complete, essentially. If you haven't seen um, our announcements on social media recently, I will give you a little recap. Um, Jew in the City has existed since 2007. Um, and in 2014, we launched um, a program called Project Makom um, to address the people that were following us from the ultra-Orthodox Haredi world that we were never expecting to reach. I started this more as an outreach type of platform to speak to the Jews who grew up non-observant like I did. And lo and behold, um, we discovered that there were all these Jews raised Orthodox and had negative experiences, and we're finding Jew in the City's positive um, and meaningful approach, um, a better way to connect with being Jewish. Um, over time, we realized that we had made a mistake in branding. People saw Jew in the City as one thing and Project Makom as something else. And so we've been recently working with a branding expert to try to figure out how we can explain that um, Jew in the City actually is one organization, one nonprofit that has three branches that live inside of it. And so we're gonna be rolling this out officially on our website and social media platforms soon, but you're gonna get a little sneak preview here. Um, we've decided to name our media arm, what people kind of associate as Jew in the City. We're calling this branch called Keter. It's to, refer, to restore the Keter Shem Tov of the Orthodox community. 
Um, we're dropping project from Project Makum, and we're just calling it Makum because Keter only has one word, so Keter Makum. And then our third branch, which we've been doing kind of secretly over the last few years, is called Tikkun. And Tikkun is to take the feedback from Makum members and the feedback from negative headlines and go to communal leaders and figure out what we can do to alleviate some of the problems so that people feel less like they need to leave and so they are less negative stories to tell. And part of how Tikkun works really is understanding the community and an amazing way to understand the community is by doing studies, which leads me to a perfect segue to today's guest. Her name is Naomi Rosenbach and she is a PhD student in clinical psychology at Hofstra University. And she has actually studied one of the topics that we're quite interested over at Jew in the City, which is what impacts Jewish Orthodox women's mikveh experience. And so she conducted a study with a couple other psychologists, um, Michael Solomon, PhD, and uh, Leora Levine. And they recently wrote up uh, their study um, in the paper um, and uh, in uh, the Journal of Religion and Spirituality in Social Work and Social Thought. Um, and we are so thrilled to have Naomi on our show today. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. And I absolutely love this um, new venture that you've just described. And I think it is very much in line with um, some of my ideas um, and uh, very much um, inspired the project. Oh, amazing. So, you know, what we've sort of come to realize is that one of the biggest Kiddush Hashem's that you can make is the Kiddush Hashem of being introspective and self-reflective. And tshuva is really so part of the process of being Jewish. And when we can sort of assess ourselves and see how we're doing and see how we can get better, because nobody's gonna get it right all the time. Really, I think what makes relationships work well um, is when we can take honest looks at who we are, where we are and figure out how to do better. And so, um, Somehow we have gotten to a point in some parts of the Orthodox world where talking about our problems is like verboten and people want to just like shush you up right away um, and, you know, kind of everything shuts off. And that I think is actually a chil Hashem that actually um, makes people not have confidence in the system. So um, my feeling is that when we are honest enough to talk about what needs to be worked on, then when we say all the good that exists, I believe we get more buy-in from the people that have been hurt to believe that maybe there actually is some good side by side. So um, I do not have a background in uh, psychology at all. I was a philosophy major and I've sort of spent my world, my professional career in Jewish outreach and education, um, but psychology has, and studies now have actually really become part of um, what I'm thinking about in major ways because the type of changes we're working on at Tihun are really like, how do we sort of assess these systemic issues? And then what, what are the most impactful ways we can make positive changes to you know, alleviate the problem? So I guess let us start off with when, why, how did this study come about? Um, why Mikva and you know, sort of where, where did this idea come from? Okay, okay, sure. Yeah, so, I think studies in general are a wonderful way to help the community. One way um, I put it is a hundred voices together is just so much more powerful than a hundred voices separate. Um, it's just louder. And there's a lot of ways together, a hundred voices together. So sometimes people do protests um, and that creates change. I think gathering the communal voice, if you're gonna go out into the community and ask people, um, 
how do how does this specific thing, whatever that thing is that you're studying, how does this affect you? And you start to gather the voices, and then there are valid uh, and reliable ways to um, look at the research and to say, well, what are the big themes that are coming out here in the least biased of ways? And uh, that can be very powerful. So. Overall, I, I share in that mis mission of trying to help Orthodox Jews um, that were raised Orthodox um, and try to just really make life better for them in whatever way they need. And the first step in that process, I think, is just asking the question. It's as simple as that. Sometimes these questions have never been asked. Why mikvah? Um, hearing anecdotes, hearing stories, um, a little bit through my clinical work, working with Orthodox women, being a community member, having friends, family, my own experiences. Mm -hmm. um, uh, hearing people say that there were that they were struggling in this area, that there were certain things that bothered them, and starting to see a little bit of a pattern where I started to think it doesn't necessarily have to be this way. There might be some help available. There might be, let's try to understand this construct better. Yeah. That's really how it came about. And so when did you begin this study? Um, and you brought on a couple of partners. Is that just because it's, it's like, what, what's the reason for bringing on partners in a study? And when did you begin it? Okay. Um, I can't tell you the exact month we began it, but I would say sometime this past December, December 2020. Mm -hmm. um, the reason most studies are usually done in collaboration with partners, um, and that's because it takes a lot of work and you need a lot of help. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you need multiple eyes on the same data mm -hmm. uh, in order to decrease bias. We can talk about that later. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, Dr. Solomon uh, and I are colleagues from the neighborhood. And when I was telling him that I, I would like to explore this area better, um, I think if he was here, he would say that in his practice, he has heard over and over again, uh, he works in a religious community and um, he's heard women talk about this and how it's affected their lives. Um, and he had that light bulb we had that light bulb moment together of uh, this is this is necessary. Mm -hmm. And so, what does what did this survey um, what what did it assess exactly? And is this? It seems like it's actually pretty quick to start in December and already have published something by March. Is that a quicker uh, survey? Or there's there's surveys that sort of track people for years, but it wasn't necessary. This was more like how are you feeling right now? Is that can you sort of explain the difference between the the surveys that sort of follow people versus like here's a questionnaire? Right. So the surveys that follow people are called longitudinal studies, and those are multiple questions over time so that you can assess change over time. This was this was gathering information at one point in time. Um, so that definitely made the process quicker. But that being said, it was a pretty quick turnaround study from start to finish. Mm -hmm. And how many people did you survey? How many women? So the results are written on uh, 368 women were included in the results. Uh, over 500 started to take the survey, um, but I only included those that answered most of the questions. Got it. And what range of communities did they speak from? Um, all over. So uh, that demographic question in terms of where they live, that was optional. Mm -hmm. um, but 
about, I don't remember the exact percentages, but there was a large percentage in America and another large percentage in Israel, and then a few from England and Toronto and Australia. And what about Hashkafa? What what Orthodox communities did they okay. have? In? Okay, so Hashkafa, I'm getting the survey right now because I don't have it by heart, but the answer choices that we gave them were Yeshiva Orthodox, Modern Orthodox, Hasidish, Chabad Lubavitch, not Orthodox, other prefer not to answer. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think about 36% of respondents were yeshiva orthodox, another 36% were modern orthodox, and the rest were kind of scattered. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and what type of questions do you ask? Okay. Would you like me to go through it with you? It's pretty sure. short. I could literally just go through all the questions. Um, yeah. Okay. So the first question is how old, we just collected some demographics, how old you are, how many years have you been using the mikvah, what socio-religious community do you most closely identify with? Um, the next question was overall, how would you rate your mikvah experience? Mm-hmm. And the answer choices are on a five point Likert scale going from very pleasant to very unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And then there was an optional te- text box Uh, that said, please tell us what makes your experience pleasant or unpleasant. So this is what's really the first thing we really wanted to assess here is what is the percentage of women that find their experience as pleasant? Mm -hmm. And what is the percentage of women that are struggling? Mm -hmm. So that was one of our research questions. Mm -hmm. And that's something that hasn't been assessed yet. I don't think there's any published study on it, even though there are a few studies uh, looking at aspects of mikvah. just understanding how how pleasant it is overall was not something that has been conducted. Okay, um, yeah. for questions. So, um, can you give us that percentage? I'm curious. And then yeah, how do you know that it's not biased? How do you know that people that are mm-hmm. so happy feel more motivated to answer questions so they can say, "Ugh, it's the worst. I hate this thing. Let me use this as a platform now." To yeah, say- yeah, that's a good question, and the answer is. Um, we don't, it, it is a little bit of a bias study in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the way we collected the sample, um, it's possible that people that felt one way or another were more drawn to answering the survey. Right. In order to decrease bias, the survey was titled, uh, hold on, title do I have it here it was titled understanding factors that influence female mikvah experience so we didn't market it as we want to understand the problems in mikvah experience and we didn't market it as we want to understand how joyous your experience is Mm -hmm. um it was marketed as neutral Mm -hmm. um but one of the limitations of the study is that it is that uh, it might not generalize to the public. And that's why more research has to be followed up with it. It was really just the first study in a line of research that we will hopefully continue. And what was what was the percentage of people that had a positive versus negative experience? I am gonna get that information right now. Sixty-one percent. Uh, rated their experience as positive. Sorry, 
hold on. Yeah, 61% rated their participant, uh, their experience as positive. 21% rated as, it as neutral and 18% as unpleasant. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so I'm curious about the rest of your questions and I have some of my own hypotheses around what makes it pleasant or unpleasant. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, if you could continue with uh, what, what else you asked. Um, then we asked them, how would you describe your halakhic education regarding the laws of mikvah? Mm -hmm. And also the answer choices were from very educated to very un uneducated. And the reason why we asked them that question is, I forgot to mention, before we conduct, once Dr. Solomon and I decided that we're going to be conducting the study, mm -hmm. the first thing we did was we did a pilot study. Mm -hmm. And we started to talk to, um, I think it was about 36 women separately. Mm -hmm. I basically interviewed, Dr. Solomon and I interviewed 36 women from different communities, from different socio-religious categories, and I said to them, if we are going to be doing a study on mikvah, first of all, do you think this is necessary? Mm -hmm. Second of all, what do you think should be asked? Mm -hmm. And we got a lot of rich information from that. And mm -hmm. um, that is a question that I personally would not have thought of if I didn't do that pilot study. Quite a few people said to us, you know, when, once I understood, once I realized I had a a bit of, of a skewed knowledge regarding what is halacha and what are chumros. Yeah. And once I was able to start making decisions for myself, yeah. um, my mikvah experience was better. Now, that's what made us add that question. Awesome. And after every one of these questions, there was an optional text box where they can provide a little more detail. And what about the answer to that? Were the more knowledgeable people in a similar number of the ones that appreciated their experience more? Oh, that's a good question. Like, what was the percent? Oh, yes, yes. Okay, you're asking me, yes. So all our hypotheses um, held up. So mm -hmm. we hypothesized that if you are more knowledgeable mm -hmm. in this area, you will are more likely to have a more positive mikvah experience. And yes, that, that correlation held up. Got it. And then what was the next question? Overall, do you find your mikvah lady to be respectful of your boundaries? And those... The answer choices were went from very respectful to very unrespectful, mm -hmm. and that hypothesis held up strongly. So people that found their mikvah ladies to be more respectful of their boundaries had a much more pleasant experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was a text box, and people wrote about. It just said, "Feel free to expand on your answer," but people started to tell us what specifically uh, makes them feel respected by a mikvah lady. Interesting, beautiful. And what else? The next question was overall, do you find the mikvah lady to be intrusive? Mm -hmm. Same thing. They okay. were able to expand on their answer and we found an absolute correlation and they told us what makes them feel like she's intrusive. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that there are ways that your mikvah experience can be improved was asked. Mm -hmm. Then we had an abuse question tagged on have you experienced abuse? I think you spoke about this um, in the beginning. Um, yeah. And you mentioned that people that experience abuse in general um, just have a difficult time. And there might be aspects about Orthodox Judaism that might make it harder for them. And as you can imagine, going to the mikvah, if you've experienced any kind of sexual or physical abuse, that can be triggering for you. Yeah. And we definitely um, found that to be true in the study. Yeah. Um, and then we had three statements and these statements also evolved from the initial, initial pilot study where mm -hmm. we spoke to 36 women. Mm -hmm. 
And these three statements, the, the participants were asked to write whether they strongly agree or, or, uh, or disagree with these statements, uh, a Likert scale also. So the first statement was, I feel comfortable letting the mikvah lady know if I am uncomfortable with the way she is interacting with me. Mm-hmm. The next statement was, I know which aspects of mikvah are halacha and which aspects are chumros or community norms. Mm-hmm. And the next statement was, I feel empowered in fulfilling the mitzvah of mikvah according to my halachic beliefs. Mm-hmm. And all three statements correlated with mikvah experience. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And that's the end of the study? Uh, uh, the yeah. And then we just asked uh, where they lived, and that was optional. But one thing that I've discussed with, because we've talked to some uh, different people working kind of in the mix of space before, and you said you're going to be doing more. One thing that I think is definitely a huge piece of this is, are you looking forward to the thing that happens when you get home from the mikvah? Yeah, absolutely. That's not to say that a person who is couldn't also have a bad experience if they're in a, and I would say also also the, the physical, um, you know, sort of setup of the mikvah. The mikvah is disgusting. Um, and that's all, you have to go to that one every single month, but the people are pleasant. It probably makes it a little bit more gross. Yeah. Um, the people are lovely. The place is lovely, um, but you can't stand the thing that happens when you come home. Um, that probably would interfere as well. Um, but I think that, I think that the, you know, intimacy, how you feel about intimacy and did you get good information in your college classes and do you have a healthy you know view of sexuality? And, you know, and that's not even, you could have, um, a non-abusive husband, you can have someone that's kind and loving, but um, because you, you know, had some sort of hang up growing up, uh, because it wasn't given over, you know, to sex education in a healthy way. Um, I think that could be something that, again, this is the space that we're very much in at Makom, um, hearing, we basically hear all the stories that went wrong. We could, I mean, there is so much data to collect really from our members because um, when it goes wrong, people want out essentially. So, um, that's definitely something that um, that we've seen is, is a correlation that, um, you know, why would you look forward to going to this place or doing this mitzvah when, you know, the piece afterwards is so unpleasant. Um, and so what kind of reaction have you gotten from publishing the article? Okay, so I would actually like to comment on something you just said before I answer this question. Um, that is exactly our next study, which we have already, which is already in the making. So our next uh, step in this, and Leora Levine, who was third author on this paper, she came on board and helped with the qualitative analysis, and we'll get into that. But um, she's taking the lead, and we're going to be looking at how mikva and um, and um, sex education and kala classes and sexual satisfaction and marriage satisfaction and how that's all related to each other. Yeah, amazing. Love it. Um, and, and so, um, what, what kind of feedback have you gotten so far on the study, on the article? Okay. Uh, pleasantly surprised. I have, I have to say, I have received only positive feedback. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't any negative reactions out there, but they haven't come my way. So I have not received not one angry email yet. Amazing. Mashiach must be on his way. Yeah. Um, We'll see what happens after this, this, uh, this platform over here. Um, but I've received beautiful feedback, things along the lines of, wow, reading this has been so validating. Thank you so much for doing this. Beautiful. Um, 
you know, one thing I didn't mention to get those uh, few hundred participants only took about 10 days. Hmm. So I think that speaks to the fact that people saw it, they felt it was important, they took their time to answer it, and they spread it pretty quickly. Hmm. Uh, I didn't work so hard to spread it, to be honest. <laughs> mm-hmm. I sent it to, we sent it to a few, you know, a few WhatsApp groups, and boom, we had our few hundred participants that we, we wanted for the initial study. I'm just giving more feedback off the top of my head before you do your next study, if there's any more space for mikvah and, and not only the intimacy part, but I'm just thinking, I think it's not just the halachic knowledge and feeling of empowerment, which is huge and is totally about like body autonomy, but also um, what hashkafic things have you learned? Like I can tell you that um, it wasn't until I was married for several years that someone said to me, you can stop and daven after the bracha. Like the way that I had sort of been given over to me in college classes, and I had a wonderful college teacher, but no one ever specifically told me, don't rush out. You can stay for a moment and leave mm-hmm. personal mm-hmm. prayers. And that it was several years before I was met. And then I started telling other women, I was surprised how many women in my community who I consider to be halakhically knowledgeable, empowered, you know, learning the nice reasons. No one had ever mentioned to them, you don't have to run in and then run out again. And just taking... I don't know, 30 seconds for, you know, just like we do after we light Shabbos candles or after we do Hafashas Chala to say that this is like, in you know, a sort of an Eitzrat zone. Um, no one ever had sort of specifically told me that. And so I always felt this need to rush out again. Um, and that was really um, an important thing for me to learn about, which is why I'm saying it here for anyone listening, if you haven't been told that for married women and future Kalas. Um, but I'm not sure if sort of the Hashkafic piece, if there's a place has mikveh ever been explained to you in a meaningful way. I think that could also be um, again, education is always more. And so when, when is the next, um, the next study coming out, the next survey coming out? Uh, hopefully in the next, in the next couple of months. Amazing. We'll put it out. And that's beautiful. You know, what you just said about spending more time in the mikvah. Um, and if I can share an anecdote myself, nobody has ever told me that either. And the first time I saw that was in this study because people had all the space to talk about him yeah. and, it wasn't a huge theme that came out, so it's not actually on the paper, but I'll say it here. There was a, there was quite a few people that said, I wish I had more time in the waters alone. That was the big thing. Wish I had more time in the water alone for a few minutes to pray. It would make it more meaningful. And the question is, why not? Why can't, why not? Do women need to be told they can take up space? And by the way, I'm a woman that takes up space. I have a voice. It's so interesting where you kind of feel like, oh, like, you know, there's a a line, like all those women in the waiting room. But it's so interesting to just sort of say, like, take your time, like, you know, have your moment. It's so interesting the things that we don't realize need to be said explicitly. You can even have an amazing teacher. Um, And we made our Doing the City Mikvah video. We actually have sort of me in that moment, like stopping and like praying for a moment because I did want to, you know, publicize that. So um, this is really tremendous. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we wish you uh, continued Hatzlacha. I mean, I think this is really the key to um, making improvements in the community is just sort of first understanding um, what, you know, what's going on. And then um, I think maybe we would love to have you back after you do your second study, because the question at that point is, how do we create change? Like what would the next sort of steps be once we have the data? Um, what can we do to create change? Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. Yeah, and to speak to that, um, you asked me about the feedback I got. Other than women saying that it validated their experience, I've actually had a few mikvah attendants 
um, and people that said that they were in charge of training mikvah attendants. They've the study circulated, and they have emailed me asking to get involved and to collaborate on training. So the goal of the data is to use it to affect change. That is the entire point. Um, and I think that it has already started to affect change if I'm being contacted by people that train mikvah ladies and saying, hey, maybe we should do things a little bit differently because these are the voices of women that use the mikvah and this is what they're asking for. Okay, and we're just about out of time now, but for any of our okay. listeners who want to contact you and collaborate, get feedback, what um, what's the best way to, to be in touch with you? My email address is fine. So it's my name, Naomi Rosenbach at gmail.com. Amazing. All right. Well, we're so grateful that, um, you know, you had this idea, you made it happen um, because this will benefit countless, I mean, not just marriages, women, couples, children. Um, so this is really a tremendous chus um, and something that is really a tremendous Kiddush Hashem. Um, and we wish you continued Hatzlacha on this journey. And please uh, do come back again after the next uh, study is done, because we'd love to talk about um, also, if we can help, if we could help, you know, with our network and our platform, um, get this message out to more people. So the right people contact you. We would love to um, be a platform to make that happen. That sounds fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And thank you so much for listening. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.